0: Welcome to Counterpoint Conversations, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon as part of the Counterpoint Women in Government series. Counterpoint will build a picture of the participation of women in government and uncover how the diversity of views affects its outcomes. How does having more women in senior leadership positions actually change the way policy is developed? And does it fulfill its goal to achieve better quality outputs? This podcast series will comprise women from the private sector engaging with their government counterpoints to explore how their experiences differ and to determine how we can draw on the best practices from each area. Counterpoint Conversations will analyze the themes surrounding the role women play in government and the broader workforce, and the structural and cultural factors that impact how they're supported during their career progression from defense and intelligence, to science and business. We'll speak with some of the women in our government and private sector ranks who are achieving incredible things. Get ready to be informed and engaged with CounterPoint Conversations by Verizon.
1: Welcome to the next episode of the Counterpoint Conversations podcast series. Today, we're talking about transformative projects at both scale and speed. And in line with the series, we've got two fascinating and very different voices today, both from the public and private sector. I'd like to welcome Patricia Kelly. Patricia's experience in the public sector goes back decades. including includes important roles with the Square Kilometre Array, project, as well as a role as the Director General of IP Australia. She has really seen some of the most interesting and long-term projects come to life within the public sector. I'd also like to welcome Josephine Sukar, who's a business owner and Director of BuildCorp. She's the President of Australian Women's Rugby and the Chair of the Australian Sports Commission, and recently gave the Shepherd Oration, which really detailed some really interesting points when we're talking about counterpoints between the public and private sector. Thank you both for joining us. Today, we're talking about transformative projects at scale. It's a very big, broad topic, and we've got two wonderful counterpoints today in our conversation. I'd like to start, Patricia, Kelly, could you just give us a a very kind of high-level overview of your career and some of the kind of key roles that you've held over the last decades?
2: Thanks, Corrie. Well, my career has been almost completely in the public sector. I spent about 38 years in the Australian Public Service. I retired a couple of years ago and now I'm on a a number of boards and committees. But the second half of my career was uh, focused largely on industry science and innovation issues, including the SKA project, which I think we're going to talk about today. And and that's really, I guess, my main interest and passion, the things that I'm doing post-retirement from the the APS.
1: And Josephine, you've had a a very long career in the business world, but you've got a whole range of other things that, that you're committed to as well. Can you just talk us through your kind of passions and work?
3: Yes, thank you, Corey. Now, I began life in medical research. That's what I studied, but I ended up very quickly in construction. I married a builder and went over there for you know three weeks to do a little job, and gosh, that was 1985. How many years later is that? Probably a similar amount of time to Patricia, actually. <laughs> In uh, construction and business. And over the last 15 odd years, honorary board roles have moved into publicly listed company board roles and now government, like for the which is great. So it's evolved from a young woman, which what I now understand we call STEM skills and probably a fair example of how transferable those skills are when you're equipped with them to move forward because I work in a very broad range of
1: areas. This is a a broader question, but as you say, Josephine, like some of the things that you're involved with, so whether it's building and construction and culture and involvement of women and also rugby, like in the time that you've been involved in both of those industries and same with you, Patricia, in the time that you've been involved in innovation and science, there's a huge cultural shift over those decades. You've seen a huge change. What are your observations about how we would be continuing to kind of fast track some of that change?
3: I'm probably happy to go first, if you like. I don't know if Patricia agrees with this. I'll be really interested in her perspectives on this. But cultural change did happen, but it took time. And when it was successful, it was because it was done carefully. And in a world where we are in a hurry for things to happen very quickly, it can be challenging, I think, for this next generation of leaders coming through to not have cultural change working lockstep with how quickly they can, you know, flip to the new Spotify song or for it to happen and stick and really, really be done well, it does, in my observations, seem to have come with the type of leadership that uses language carefully and has those conversations really well because we do need to bring a lot of people along the journey with us. And my observations of today and to bring the type of change Patricia and I might have observed in the industries that we've been in and in my case construction and and even in business, you know, most of the time I've ended up the only woman or the first woman on boards. Even in the, the government role I'm in now, the first woman sports commissioner, it does work better and it does stick and stay longer because we are looking for sustainable change if we have the right leaders using appropriate language that doesn't make
2: anybody feel like they're not part of the conversation.
1: I think it's a really interesting point. Patricia, I'd love your, your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I guess looking back to my first job in the public sector was in 1975, and the um, the public sector back then was unrecognisable. I suppose it's, it's not surprising. I mean, it was only six or seven years after the marriage ban was um, rescinded in the public sector. So it wasn't surprising that there weren't that many women leaders. But the sorts of behaviours that were accepted back then are just unthinkable today. So I think sometimes we underestimate, you know, how much change has happened and how far we've come. But look, I very much agree with Josephine that the issue of taking people with you and at the same time maintaining the momentum for change is, is a big challenge. And I think sometimes it's a bit two steps forward and one step back so I think it's important that you know, people do keep pushing and keep that momentum up. And also, I mean, change always is going to encounter obstacles. And I think we need to, to plan for those, you know, strategic planning and planning for how you, you get around obstacles and uh, maintaining the momentum in the face of obstacles, I think is, is what we, we need to do. I
1: just wanted to step back to the the concept of counterpoint because while well, we're talking about change and we're talking about change, both momentum but also being careful about how we make change happen and stick. Joseph, I was really interested in your shepherd oration. It kind of goes to the heart of that counterpoint theme. You know, this was in late November, I believe, and you were talking about you know perspectives of government and small business, particularly in a time of crisis. There was Really interesting perspectives around resilience and change and adversity and the way that we respond. Obviously, it's been a few months since that oration and change continues to happen. I just wondered if you can expand a little bit on that and what you see as a, a business person, but also with your involvement in government and the interactions you have with government.
3: Look, not necessarily the hardwiring of small business owners, but by necessity. If you own the local corner shop and you're house is on the line to sort of back that business to work or with the ability to service your mortgage or pay your children's school fees or whatever your obligations are it drives an extra fire in your belly to make sure that that business succeeds and by extension it almost forces you to think more broadly and become more agile and resilient to economic shifts changes because you know i watched a in the building that my husband and i own we work out of there's a, a fabulous cafe in the bottom of the building and i've been watching them through covid and just before covid when across the road a very large tunnel some infrastructure work was happening here in australia in camperdown where our office is and all of a sudden a whole lot of buildings and businesses disappeared from around this cafe that was servicing this cafe and that was a huge hit to that business. But what it was immediately replaced with was a whole bunch of builders like us who, you know, were in there for the five o'clock bacon and egg rolls and coffees and tea. But how you manage in those times in between. And I can remember having conversations with the gentleman that I own it and they and the young business people. So you know, ensure that in the good times you set yourself up for when there are downturns because they will always come. And some of these lessons that we learn as business owners and ourselves, how to keep a business going when something really strange happens. Now, I could say that there have been four economic downturns since we've had the business, which is the case. I've had it 32 years, actually, next week, but every single one has been totally different. It's had a totally different shape and a totally different impact, and our responses had to be totally different. So, I'd like to say we know how to serve the wave of an economic downturn because We've done that three times before. The reality is the responses have had to be totally different. But what are the things that small business owners know or any business owner knows? And they're often, well, these are the things that I can't change. I can't change the quality of my coffee because the clients will go anyway. We can't change the quality of our, the way we build or the way we do them safely. Also, there are some things that you have to hold firm and cannot change, but there is an enforced mental agility, I suppose, that has to come with being a small business owner because you've got no boss to look up to to say what are you going to do to fix this it's your ass in the sling.
1: Patricia you made a submission to the APS review similar themes coming up around you know tolerance for risk and speed and innovation and and that goes to the heart of I guess what we've talked about a lot in terms of the COVID response as being like we've had a burning platform now how does government take some of that sense of urgency and m- moving with speed and bottle some of that kind of small business tenacity that Josephine was talking to? Or, or do we just revert to type? I'm keen for your thoughts on on what we can take away from a public sector perspective.
2: Yeah, well, look, I also read Josephine's Shepherd' oration and I thought you really captured the uncertainty of the, the times that we live in and the sorts of challenges. And, of course, they're challenges that are very much facing governments and public sector too and clearly we do need you know agility and flexibility and resilience in the public sector responses and those words are probably very overused and there's a lot of rhetoric around them how they're actually implemented tends to to vary a little bit so i think in response to covid we have seen a fair bit of that on display not everything has you know gone brilliantly from a public sector perspective but i think you know, many aspects of the response have Exemplified, you know what we need—a public sector that works as one and not not tribally. For example, there are things, though, in the public sector, Corey, that um, I think are not so positive trends and that, that worry me. And one is this issue about the public sector focusing on implementation. I mean, It seems to me that the public sector really needs to focus on policy and long-term planning because nobody else does that. I mean, you know political cycles are short and we really do need a public sector that focuses on long-term planning. And that's where you get a lot of that disruptive and challenging thinking coming through. So I think that 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 worries me a little bit. And the other thing that worries me a little bit currently is the focus on consultancies. Now, consultants have a legitimate role to supplement public sector skills. That's certainly the case. But when they start to take over core areas of public sector work and particularly important areas in in sort of policy and long-term planning I you know I worry that you're de-skilling the public sector and you're taking away the opportunity for them to address the sort of challenging and disruptive issues that need to be addressed in the public sector so I think for me there are some positive trends and some not so positive trends in the in the public sector. Can I a hundred percent support Everything Patricia just said
3: about the public sector, I think this is critical to us ensuring we have a really positive recovery post-COVID. And not only is it possible to recover, actually done well, we will come out of COVID better if we do engage in this long-term thinking. But the piece on consultants as well, I think we've got to have a bit of a rethink about how we're imagining public service because I haven't been as embedded in the public service as I've had to have been in the last 12 months. And my observations are there are some seriously smart people there. But sometimes you will hear from the outside of the public service, bureaucratic, takes a long time to make decisions. Well, the approval processes are ridiculous. They're absolutely nonsensical a lot of the time. But it's this business of accountability. And in the Shepherd one of the things that I really did want to have the business and government and the broader community focus on is what would happen if it were your own money and this decision were yours and you took? 12 months, 3 months, 18 months, kicked a decision down the road, what would be the consequences to you personally or the commercial consequences to your business? And in this case, the economic consequences to the nation. My observations are that there are really smart people within government, but if we were to reimagine government the way, say, the Singaporean government imagines their government, which is only the very smartest, brightest people get to be in government as a really aspirational place to be which is why I'm so proud to be part of government at the moment because this is where the actual change happens this is where you have an opportunity to be part of feedback into building the nation that we all aspire to have so i could not agree more with the piece on consultants and let's if the consultants are so great let's employ them let's get them in government and let them get to you know the level of that patricia the you know the loftier that patricia achieved if they are that good, but we, we need to not have our public servants work with one arm tied behind their back and try and second guess what's going to happen with this proposal if I put it up for approval, what's going to happen with this, how long will it take, is it likely to get up, what do people want to hear versus what is the right decision
2: for the nation. Can I make a comment?
1: Oh, go for it. I think uh, we're all in vigorous agreement.
2: But I was going to say to Josephine, one thing that the public sector is very good at is process. And, of course, the, the public sector is a little bit different from the private sector in that it has those features of a lot of political oversight, heavy public scrutiny and some quite complex stakeholder relationships. But that can create risk aversion and risk aversion can affect decision-making in quite negative ways. And a good process, I think, is very important for good policy and, and good implementation of policy. But there comes a point when so let's have another study or let's have a second business case and process really can become just an excuse for inaction or for delayed action and we seem to be often much better at um, imagining the risks of action than the risks of inaction in the public sector so you know it does worry me that um, that process really does sometimes get taken to the point where instead of adding value it limits the benefits or delays the benefits and adds to the cost past a certain point. You've nailed it. Risk of action versus risk of inaction. You've absolutely nailed it, Patricia.
1: And can I just say, and this is probably a good segue into talking about the square kilometre array, like one of the things that government does have on its side if there is that kind of bold, long-term thinking and ability to see through large, complex projects that are the most exciting things that we have going on in this country. So, you know, where people initiate great big things and then they can be sustained over decades... Patricia, you were involved in that project for a long time and still are. How have you seen that change and that commitment to something that is quite mercurial for the average person in the street?
2: Yeah, look, um, it's a, quite a privilege to work on a science mega project, and I've worked on this one for about 15 years. Well, initially involved in, from the government side in leading the bid to host the instrument and then sitting on the board of the, a, a not-for-profit company was set up to developed the design and uh, progressed the project. And I represented Australia on the board of the company. And then we had the negotiation of a treaty to underpin the project. And I led the Australian delegation to that treaty negotiation. And then for the two years leading up to last year, I chaired an international group of 16 countries that were setting up a new international organisation to run the project and bringing it to construction stage. So, you know, it gave me over the years a wealth of, of really rewarding experience. And, you know, a lot of that experience has been around how you can bring together collaborations of groups. So, you know, nationally we were bringing together the West Australian government, the federal government, the science community, business interests, and the traditional landowners to work together on the project. And then internationally, you're, you're bringing together a group of countries that often have quite different perspectives and approaches. So it's very interesting and rewarding work. And I, as I say, I feel privileged to have been able to be involved.
1: And I think now it's sort of entering into a phase where when you look at space or satellites or any of these things, we're starting to get a sense of what those commercial opportunities are. And probably when you started, commercial was probably the furthest thing from anyone's mind. Now there's a whole ecosystem being built off the back of that investment. Is that, is that, again, another shift of culture in the way we talk about deep science and business?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, look, these sorts of projects, you know, you've just seen the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope that was 20 years in the making and, you know, $10 billion, That billion. They, they're long-term and mostly when you start them, the technology that you need to deliver them doesn't exist or not all of it exists. So, for example, the computing technology didn't, didn't exist and doesn't yet quite exist to um, support the Square Kilometer Array. But, yeah, look, um, there are lots of very valuable spin-offs in things like sensor technology and even things like renewable energy, and you do push the envelope on innovation and technology through these projects. Look, there are things that are too big for any one country to do by itself. So to, to achieve some of these things, we have to find ways of countries working together.
1: Talking about large projects, Josephine, the construction sector has changed uh, hugely in the way that it solves challenges. And I think when you talk about technology and innovation, I was really interested to learn that your company developed an app to help kind of mitigate some of the quality issues. But the size and speed and the skills and the diversity to, you know, we're now talking connected buildings in all sorts of ways. There's similar types of complexity coming with some of the projects that you'll be leading.
3: That, that is the case and to Patricia's point, you can't do it on your own. So no builder builds anything all on their own. There are consultants and clients and subcontractors and government body, whoever you are working with, you have to all do it together and you're only as good as your weakest player it doesn't matter how great the building is if the plumber's not on song or the architect is missing. so you need to be able to lift everybody and the development of this quality app was to Patricia's point you need really good very good strong processes and you need to adhere to them but you can have the best processes in the world but if no one's paying attention to them it's like having the best strategy in the world to have McKinsey or you know Come along and do your fabulous strategy, but if nobody's implementing it, it's it's worth naught. So we did invest in a an app. We built an about five years ago now, I want to say, and it was around ensuring that subcontractors adhered to the drawings, the plans, the quality that was expected of the project, but we made it available to everybody, to the designers, to the consultants, so everybody could see who was doing what where. and no subcontractor was paid their monthly instalment of payment unless they had satisfactorily completed to the level of quality that was expected at the very end, that those tiles on that particular floor or that petitioning. So by the time we got to the very end of the project, there was nothing miraculous about it. The process it was just a way of capturing it and very rapidly getting what could be a perceived or potential defect a, um, a site supervisor photographing where a, a piece of cornice met a you know the corner of a wall wasn't quite happy with it get the team back the very next day to come and sort that out versus developing a very long defect list at the end of the project you know a one and a half year project it just it doesn't make sense it's nonsensical what was the value of that? Was the value really in the app or was the value in our people leading those construction sites? And at any one time we've probably got, I don't know, between 50 and 70-odd construction sites running across the eastern seaboard. The ability of our people to influence those subcontractors to adhere to the app, to use processes, and builders are not so bad actually at doing this. My husband described this really well through COVID. We... I've been really fortunate through COVID. Construction is an essential service and so we were running very well. And my husband wasn't so concerned about the spread of COVID on construction sites because he said the thing with construction, it is not a safe industry if it isn't done well. And um, we've got great safety practices that built up and the sector has really moved along from when I first began in construction. And the teams on site are very used to Today, everybody, we're working on the left-hand side of the site because there's a crane lift happening on level 30. So, you know, use these steps and they just do it. You know, are we changing? Are we doing this now? this business of teams to be able to influence subcontractors and in our case, our site leaders, make sure everyone's adhering to the safety systems, make sure everybody's adhering to the quality systems, that app was just a vehicle which we ensured our processes were being adhered to. Yes, and we actually did receive some federal funding for that, which was really terrific it's a commercial edge there's no question Yeah, you know, we hand over defect free projects it's been um, amazing as if that is wonderful and it's a commercial edge for us all of a sudden the team that leaves one project doesn't have to go back to it again 10 times to to wrap up defects it's done and it allows us to free our teams up to keep moving
1: again it's a good sort of counterpoint in the role i mean sort of david channel has obviously been appointed since you you know launched the app and took that industry-led initiative to but the fact that it wasn't the app itself, it's bringing people on board, having a goal of, you know, defect-free, you know, that role of government and industry that have to be working together, I guess, to get to the to the goal.
3: Well, David's important because there's a very low barrier to entry to be a builder, right? You can hang a shingle and say I'm a builder and start developing things. And that's a huge problem for the community. Whereas if I look at our journey, thankfully, my husband Tony has a building degree and we both came through the Lend-Lease stable, which we're um, eternally grateful for. In the 80s, it was like a postgraduate time instead of there, which was wonderful. But unfortunately, in our sector, there is a very low barrier to entry, and that's how we end up with projects that require a, a David Chandler to yeah, be on board.
1: Just to... Um I guess sort of start wrapping up the conversation, Patricia, you now have a range of roles that span across lots of interest areas of yours from the university sector to ARCs. You've obviously chosen to spend your time on those things because you're passionate about them. What does the next 12 months look like, both for you but the projects that you're working on? And what is it that's sort of energizing you about where we are right now and that great sort of promise of innovation and Australia?
2: Well, Look, there's a couple of things in the works that I don't know will will come to fruition or not. So my next 12 months is not all that clear. But I guess we're looking forward to hopefully coming out of the COVID period and, you know, in, in some ways being able to resume normal transmission. Although, I you know, I, I suspect there are going to be changes are going to permeate the future. I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of people are, are going to be working from home. I think there's some positive things that have come out of COVID. I mean, um, the University Council that I sit on, we got a new Vice-Chancellor just as COVID started and he's now established the practice, which never happened before, of having a an online town hall with all staff that they can submit questions to every two months. And, you know, it's, it's a great communications exercise and feedback exercise that probably wouldn't have happened without COVID. And so I think there are kind of going to be changes like that in the way we work, some of them positive, going forward. <laughs> COVID changed my life quite a lot because I did a year of Zooming around the world and then all that stopped and I spent the the second year of the the work I do on the SKA on Zooms mostly between about, you know, uh, five in the afternoon and, and two in the morning because of, a lot of it was international. And I think it was amazing what we found we could achieve in, you know, in that medium without being, being able to meet. It's quite different because you can't, Say well, we'll have a coffee break, and I'll take the protagonist aside, and we'll you know we'll sort it out in the in the corridor. You have to <laughs> you have to handle things differently when you when you're in a Zoom world. So I, I think we're all going to be finding that um, life goes on slightly differently. But I think it's quite exciting that you know, as we move out of hopefully the COVID period, we can get back to focusing on some of the important things that perhaps haven't been getting a lot of attention over the last couple of years when we've been very preoccupied with um, managing a pandemic.
1: Josephine, I've been told that we can see sort of themes throughout
2: history where
1: big changes in technology and times of economic uncertainty for the business community can often supercharge it. Do you feel that? Do you feel that sense of, as COVID starts to you know, settle into the, the new normal, as you like, that there's a huge amount of like, opportunity and growth ahead?
3: Oh, 100%. And talking to Patricia's point, I think it's when you can look into the face of uncertainty and not be paralysed by it, which is what Patricia does and she's talking to and it clearly is no accident. She got to where she did in her career. And as we learn to sit more comfortably with rapid change, of course the world has always evolved and has changed, but this is coming at us at an exponential rate. And how do we learn to get a bit more comfortable with change and, you know, wrap, wrap our heads around that in a way that doesn't mean that we, you know, we don't pause a bit and think and be considered and deliberate. But I think the wonderful thing about humans is that we're incredibly adaptable. And, you know, I keep quoting Darwin just about every podcast or each I do, but it's a hard wiring of the scientists in me. It is not the strongest of the species that will survive. It is that those that are the most adaptive um, to change and as a species we need to continue to remind ourselves of that and be comfortable with that even though sometimes we might sit a bit uncomfortably with that uncertainty but backing ourselves to know that we've got everything that we need you know internally and as in our case yes it often resides in the business community that ability to create new innovative opportunities but don't underestimate private sector and i think we've got to start expecting from the private sector what we expect from businesses and i certainly do because now I'm on the inside looking in it. There are so many smarts in there. We've got to ensure that those systems don't paralyze the very good people in there with a the very great thinking that's um, happening. So much to be done, much to be done.
1: I think that's a great place to leave the conversation. It has been a privilege to speak with both of you today. Josephine Sukar and Patricia Kelly, thank you so much for joining CounterPoint. Much appreciated.
2: Pleasure. Thanks, Gary.
0: We hope you enjoyed this special Counterpoint Conversations podcast by Verizon. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit Verizon.com.